Let us pray. Father, speak to us even now by your word. Draw us more fully and completely to yourself. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, and take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, and turn today to our Gospel reading from Matthew's Gospel. While you're doing that, I just want to mention again, two weeks from today, Sunday, November 1st, which is also All Saints Day, Bishop John will be making his annual visit to the church. We have a number of of people being confirmed and received into membership. We're very excited about that. And then following the service that Sunday will be one service as we've been having at 10 o'clock. If you're coming to the service, you need to pre-register for the service, but we're also going to have a socially distanced kind of a picnic event outside with packaged hot dogs, packaged chips, bottles of water, um, very much to limit and control contact with each other. But you need to register for that event separately because we have thought that there may be some folks who aren't comfortable coming to an inside event who may be willing to come to that. We're going to try to get the outside heaters working for that day, and also we will light the fire pit. But want to invite all of you to that. Um, and very much looking forward to having Bishop John here. Talked with him um, for a while this week on the phone about his visit. And so, yeah, I want to make sure everyone is aware of that both in person and via the live stream. Today, we're continuing our stewardship focus. And just to kind of give you a sense of how our stewardship process is working this year in these unusual times, preaching on stewardship today and then again next Sunday. And then the Sunday following Bishop John's visit will actually be our Pledge Commitment Sunday. So Sunday, November 8th. Between now and then, actually sooner rather than later, everyone will be receiving, and that includes everyone watching the live stream, will be receiving through the mail a pledge card, a letter from me, and a brochure just helping you to see what your faithful giving in the past year has accomplished. And then we will give the opportunity to give both in person at the service that day, or make pledges rather in person at the service that day but also via the church website. So again, it's a little bit, things are a little bit different this year, but everyone will be receiving a mailing um, within the next week or so, outlay, out, lying out all of those specifics about our pledging process this year. So looking to Matthew's gospel, today's reading is the first in a sequence of accounts where, as is so often seen in the gospels, the religious leaders are trying once again to set Jesus up. In each instance, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are portrayed in the Gospels in an incredibly and profoundly negative light. Today's account begins, again, not unusual, with them trying to, to flatter Jesus. They do this in verse 16 by saying four things about Jesus to Jesus. They tell him first that you are true. Second, you teach the way of God truthfully. Third, you do not care about anyone's opinion. And finally, you are not swayed by appearances. Everything they've said here about Jesus is completely accurate. But there's not a drop of sincerity or genuineness in their words. They are simply looking to entangle or ensnare Jesus. But Jesus isn't taken in by their flatterly, flattery. He is keenly aware of what is happening. If we jump forward to verse 18, it tells us that Jesus was aware 
of their malice. The flattery in verse 16 is immediately followed by them saying in verse 17, tell us what you think. I think it's important to notice here, since they have manipulatively asserted that Jesus teaches the way of God, they don't ask him what God's law says. They don't ask him what the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings command. Instead, they ask him, what do you think? And this is a setup. They continue in the second portion of verse 17 by asking, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A direct answer to this question, either yes or no, was a lose-lose. Both they and Jesus knew this. If Jesus would have answered yes, then he would be viewed as undercutting popular support as the Messiah. If Jesus answered no, then he could be charged as a revolutionary, fomenting resistance against the Roman rulers, and this would have led to a swift execution. Jesus, knowing the setup, answers neither yes or no directly. Instead, he asks them to show him a coin. So this is the setup, and it's important for our understanding, which brings us to the first of our two main points this morning. And the first point this morning is posed to me by all of us as a question. Whose image is seen? Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Pointing clearly to the coin or holding the coin up for them to see. That can also validly be translated, whose icon is this and whose epigraph? The coin they presented to Jesus clearly bore the image of the emperor. The side of the coin bearing the emperor's image, if we would the front, if you will, the front of the coin would also have said in Latin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The other side bore the image of the emperor's wife, depicted as a goddess. Clearly, all of this was tied to the cult of emperor worship in Roman culture and the false belief in Roman culture that the emperor was divine. The emperor was a god. The fact is, coins minted locally in Judea, which this coin clearly was not, did not have the emperor's image on them because of Jewish sensibilities. This is a cultural accommodation the Romans made in Judea and Palestine to keep things under control. What's interesting is, The coins that didn't bear the emperor's image were not valid for paying taxes. You had to have the coins minted outside of the Judean region that had this image of the emperor on them when you paid your taxes. And coins, even more significantly for our purposes today, coins with the emperor's image on them were forbidden in the temple, which is where this encounter took place. That fact alone demonstrates the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Here they are carrying a coin that was forbidden in the temple as sacrilege in their possession. But there's more. And here's the application of the point this morning. Whose image is seen? Not just on the coin, but in the hearts and lives of these people. What 
whose image is seen in the hearts and lives of the Jewish leaders? Whose image is seen in Jesus? And for our application this morning, extending it to us, whose image is seen in you and me? Throughout Scripture, it is affirmed that we are created in God's image as human beings. Genesis 1.27 and so many other places in Scripture explicitly state this. Jesus himself, as the eternal Son of God, bore the image of God perfectly. John 1.14 reminds us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, referring to Jesus, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then continuing in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So that clarifies that Jesus perfectly, as the eternal Son of God, bore the image of God. But what about you and me? Beyond the general sense of bearing God's image as human beings, which all human beings do, if we know Christ, if we belong to Christ, how much are we an image bearer or an icon, if you will, of the truth of who Christ is? When people around us see and interact and work with us, do they get a clear, albeit imperfect image or glimpse of who Jesus is? Is his inscription written on us? I like what one commentator says, reflecting on this text. Only Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation in the absolute, eternal, and consubstantial sense has the power, listen to this, not only to unearth that divine image in ourselves, buried and deformed under the rubble of sin, but above all, the power to restore it to its pristine newness and return it to the Father. Let me read the second portion of that again. Only Jesus has the power not only to unearth that divine image in ourselves, buried and deformed under the rubble of sin, but above all, the power to restore it to its pristine newness and return it to the Father. How are we doing in yielding ourselves so that Jesus is unearthing in greater and fuller measure that divine image in us, that divine image buried and deformed by sin? How are we doing with yielding to him and his power to restore to its pristine newness and return it to the Father for the glory of God? Are we yielding to the work of Jesus to do that? Are we yielding to the work of the Spirit in us to do that? If we know Christ and we are pressing in with Christ, that is what he has done and that is what he continues to do by the work of the Spirit in us. And it is Christ alone, not human effort, but Christ alone by his grace and by his power who can and will do for anyone, do this for anyone who truly comes and surrenders to him. I like this idea of being an icon. You think of icons. I have some icons in my office. 
the window into the truth of God. How much is our life, my life, and your life a window into who Jesus is, into the truth of God in Christ for those around us? Whose image is seen? Whose image is seen? Then the second question, whose property are you? Whose property are you? Whose property am I? This is the second and final question. Look at verse 22 with me. Excuse me, verse 21. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. A more literal translation of this verse could be, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, And give back to God what is God's. In Roman culture at that time, not only was coin production controlled by the emperor, and not only did the coin bear the emperor's image, but even more significantly, all Roman currency, all Roman coins were officially the personal property of the emperor. Faithful Jews because of this, preferred death than to to permit the pagan image of Caesar to enter the temple courts. So Jesus says, basically, give the coin back to Caesar. It belongs to him. But then he says, but render to God that which is God's. And to render that which is God's back to God is something far greater than giving the coin back to Caesar. Because to render to God what is God's is to surrender the entirety of my life and your life to him. To render to him the worship of our lives that belongs, that is owned, that is due to him alone. To render to God what is God's also means that the genuine worship of him requires surrendering all that we possess to him. To trust fully, wholly, and completely in him and not in any way to rely or be dependent upon the stuff of this world for our sustenance. Whose image is seen? Whose property are you? Brothers and sisters, this is, I'm sure some of you are thinking, what's this have to do with stewardship? This is the heart and the essence, the essence of true biblical stewardship. Yielding, fully surrendering to God. And surrendering stuff, possessions, money, begins with our recognizing that we are not our own. Our lives are not our own. If we have come to Christ, we are to render to God what is God's, which is the entirety of who we are, who he has made, and who he is, is perfecting us to be by his spirit. One of the biggest problems I think we run into in this culture that we live in, we see it all the time, is that even Christian people think of life kind of as a big pie graph, if you can picture it, a big circle. And church falls right into the pie graph. You know, my relationship with God, that's one wedge in the pie. 
along with work, along with rec leagues, along with scouts, along with, and I'm not, none of these things are necessarily bad things, but it's one more wedge. That's why so often when people come looking for a church, it's like a cafeteria approach. What church can put out the biggest spread? Who has the most to offer for me to meet my needs? And that's a really problematic approach because the question should begin with, God, where are you calling us to serve you and your people and the community and the world? Not, God, what's in it for me and the church that could put up the biggest spread and has this for my kids and this for my education and I just take things off of the smorgasbord and I bundle off what I want and take it to my table and sit down and gorge away. That's not the way it should work. And this mindset that God is one part of the wedge will never work because until we get to the place where we understand that God, through Jesus and our relationship with him, is the whole pie, the whole pie graph, and everything else fits into place in that context, understand that he is our all in all. Until we get to that place, none of the other stuff is going to work because we're not to the place of surrender. We're not to the place of giving back to God what is rightfully his, the entirety of who we are. We can't compartmentalize. It's all God and nothing else. And then, when we surrender in that way, our time, our talents, our finances, all of those things come into place because our trust is in God. And we understand that when we, when we give of ourselves, when we give of that which God has entrusted to us, whatever that is, including finances, we're giving out of the whole and returning to God that which is his rightfully already. And when it comes to things like finances, when we think of giving and tithing, how merciful that God only asks a minimum of 10%. That's not the max, that's the starting point. But how merciful, and, and even more how merciful and wonderful it is when we reach the principle of living out that, understanding that we surrender those things to God, that portion that we, he allows us to retain according to his will to live our lives in this world, aligned with kingdom principles, it goes far more than the 100% would ever go. And you never will know and experience that until you test God in that, as Malachi says. Not somehow because we give to get. Not somehow because we give and therefore God's going to make us rich. No, but because we're surrendered to him and we're yielded to him. And we're rendering to God that which is God's, which is the entirety of who we are. I found a graphic this week as I was looking for some sermon illustrations. And Jason, if you could put it up. I think it's a good idea or a good picture of how some people respond to the Lord. Lord, immerse me in you. I'm being baptized into Christ, but I'm holding my money way up here out of the water. It's not going down with me. And I think there's a lot of truth in that sometimes. Lord, we'll, I'm going to yield to you, but I'm going to hang on to to this. And it doesn't have to just be money, but money is a very prime example, especially in an affluent culture like we live in, of that happening. 
So it comes back to the question, whose property are you? Whose property am I? And if we know that we are truly Christ's, that we are God's through Jesus Christ, then he will be working in us, even as I read earlier, restoring that image in ever greater measure that's been pressed down under the rubble of sin. And he will be restoring that image in such a way that our hearts cry, not just out of some sense of duty and obligation, but our hearts cry will be, Lord, have all of us, and we will gladly and joyfully render unto God that which is God's, which is the entirety of who we are, even our very lives. Let us pray. Lord, you are our all in all. And Father, you are our great provider. And we are so grateful for all that you have done in our lives of your grace and mercy. And Father, thank you that you continue to pour in upon us grace upon grace, even as John 1.16 says, for from the fullness of his grace we have all received, grace upon grace. So Father, work in us your power. Work in us in a way that we become in ever greater measure icons for the world around us into the truth of who Jesus is into divine truth, windows into divine truth. And Lord, remind us in fresh ways and ever greater measure that we belong to you. And out of that, may we render back to you that which is yours alone, the entirety of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.